coming to you live, but not really. It is all pump and no circumstance with Ryder Richards on LetUsThinkAboutIt.com, the amateur hour you should never tune into. Welcome back. This is Ryder Richards with Let Us Think About It. Okay, last week we talked about how money came to be, um, basically its origins. And considering that it grew from something really pure and sacred, uh, it, it grew from promises and trust. It's really kind of fascinating to see how it has been co-opted and transmuted into something that now serves what uh, Charles Eisenstein would call evil, really. That evil, that is a separation of all people from not only each other, but also from nature. And this is separation from the sacred. Eisenstein has several ideas on how we can rebalance, or transform, the way money functions to align it with sacred principles, or sacred incentives. Uh, this is all in his book, Sacred Economics. Okay, well let's jump straight into it. Part 1. The Story Separation and Oneness So last week we talked about interest, or usury. And using the parable of the 11th round, you could actually see how every step along the way, everything seemed like an improvement. It was a convenience. It was easier. It was like a technological innovation. Except for somewhere along the way, we got caught in a trap. We got a little distracted and maybe our focus got uh, thrown off a bit. And slowly, every person grew to suffer more and more, while the overall wealth of the village grew and grew. And eventually, the earth suffered as well. And yet, when growth is what you serve, that growth must come from somewhere. And it seems to come from, well, basically extracting not only from the earth, but also from the social and moral bonds that we hold dear. The way money is used today, it generates resentment and it builds depression. And this isn't just among the poor, this also happens to the rich. And that's because this system, it's a pathological illusory prison. And maybe really that's how we should think of it, right? Is usury equals illusory because it doesn't exist. It's just an artificial concept that we're living by. As Eisenstein says, this illusion is a prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for only the few people nearest us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living beings and all of nature. And then he goes further, actually saying that to bring forward generosity and love in all dimensions of life, we must dismantle the systems of domination that perpetuate the illusion of separation, most notably the neoliberal system of economics, but also religion and politics. Yeah, can you imagine that? Now, the difficulty is we're perpetually bombarded and distracted by the reinforced narrative, right? This is the story of separation. We just need to look at the language used here, the marketing of the story of money, because money tends to use the language of freedom or liberty, of individuality, which is, of course, kind of hard as individuals to argue against. Now, why is this? It's because we pursue our preferences as sovereign individuals. We are entitled to our preference as a means to become our authentic self, <laughs> right? Which, of course, just so happens to be through purchases and distractions, through trinkets, right? Through tools to keep us separated from others and even from our own thoughts, right? Our desires are turned against us. The libidinal economy that we exist in actually serves to distract us from engaging with the very faculties we need to truly find our authenticity, 
<laughs> and yet we call that our authenticity. So the paradox here is that our authenticity can actually be found often in submission to reality, right? Not a denial of it for some sort of artificial mental projections and illusions that are floating out around us. Yeah, so sorry, I sort of went off there, but on a little philosophical tangent, let's get back to the idea of money, right? Because we're talking about how it tends to use the language of ease and convenience. It uses a language of security and speed, and this all gets wrapped up with personal agency. Hmm. Just do it, Nike. Because you're worth it, L'Oreal. Think different, Apple. I mean, all of this is like saying, be productive, entitled, and unique, right? By purchasing the exact same products everyone else purchases. That's how you become unique, <laughs> right? And then I was talking about how they keep using this language of freedom and liberty. And one of the good ones for this is to look at things like credit cards. So MasterCard says things like, more living, less limits. You're unlimited, totally free, huh? Or the future takes Visa <laughs> everywhere you want to be. You know, as if you're just going to go traveling the globe once you get a visa. Um, every one of these statements is really predicated upon the individual as sovereign, as unique, and as a creature of, you know, unlimited agency. But nowhere in this space do we actually talk about other things like the social good, the public, the commons. All these things are about the unique individual, right? We don't talk about the social economy of what we owe to others. And really, honestly, what do we owe to others? Well, Matthew Crawford, a guy I'm lately reading, he might say that it's as simple as being attentive. But also, simply paying attention to each other might be too much effort for us these days. We already have too many distractions. We have an attentional economy right now that's going on. And we resent even the suggestion of giving our attention to someone else. So how are we supposed to oppose all of this, right? This is all being, uh, you know, these distractions are bombarding us constantly, and it's really separating us from others. Well, Eisenstein says what we must do is disengage from the system, not oppose it. The idea is really to sort of, in a bizarre way, feed upon the resources of capitalism to manifest and emerge as butterflies. From this kind of cocoon that currently traps us and holds us back, we must mature and to do that, we should steal energy from the rotting corpse of capitalism, right? Using its bones as a scaffolding from which to build our new society. Now, to do this, we need a new story. Not the age of separation, but the story of ascent. Part two. Oh, hell yes. Yeah, I am in. That sounds cool, right? So, uh, what now? How do we get started? Right. Well, if you just purchase this handy-dandy capitalist katana, it slices, it dices, it says, I'm cool with decapitating capitalism and cultural appropriation. Hell yeah. Buy yours now for pennies on the dollar and only three easy payments at 20% APR. At <laughs> so, right, we're in deep whenever our solutions to any kind of capitalism involve more capitalism, more purchasing of products, and more individual identity, right? Because our individual personal identities are captured and targeted by faceless companies. And it is these companies themselves that need to change as well. It's not just our attitudes. And so when I say something like a company, of course, we can think about Google and Facebook and Apple. But you can also think of your local employer or your college, right? You can also consider the 
entire government as a type of company with its own interests. And those interests can be very obscure, right? Not what they say they are. But all of this shapes what thrives and dies through kind of selective regulation. And we're not going to stray too far into this, but if you're ever interested in how the government and money work and you want your mind blown, just look up some uh, documentaries on how money is actually created and controlled by governments. Because if you ever thought money actually had intrinsic value, or if you ever say things like the gold standard, right? (laughs) Because why is gold valuable? Who said that was valuable? You're going to start realizing that it's all an illusion that's stacked on a mirage, eating lunch with an apparition, (laughs) right? And those dollars that people are dying for, I mean, these are just like phantasm farts, right? And they're just plucked from the ether and sold back to you. It's all really belief through mass consensus. But of course, what's important about this is if we're focused on story, it tells us that the power of a good story to shape the world, I mean, it's very potent. So, okay, let's get back into it real quick. We need to alter, of course, our personal behaviors and attitudes. We've talked about that, but systemically, we need a policy in place that actually aligns wealth with the sacred. And as mentioned last podcast, if money functions separately from nature as an eternal abstraction that accrues value, well, it's unnatural by definition. Now, to realign it with nature, it too must function like nature. And that means it would rot or decay over time, like vegetables, livestock, or, you know, the potency of those phantasm farts. Uh, But either way, Eisenstein brings up negative interest, which leads to depreciating money. And this sounds horrible at first, right? But let's walk through this. First, negative interest is when money circulates and investment continues, but without a return on the original capital. So as a matter of fact, the original capital here would actually lose value over time. It would redirect us to value capital less than the products or services. So currently, with our positive interest, right, we actually value money more because there's an incentive to hoard money, which basically means pulling it out of circulation and holding on to it because you get rewarded through that. So the focus here is all on money, not the goods and services, because the money itself can generate its own wealth. And the goods and services are really kind of secondary to that. Now, if you hoard or stockpile wealth, which grows when left in the dark, kind of like mushrooms or something, I mean, it really encourages stagnation. Now, in a really simple example, if I get a 5% interest rate from the bank, but the economy only grows at 3%, hmm, well, it's better to store my money where it extracts more money from the economy than it actually provides benefit to anybody. (laughs) Okay, this is crazy. There are ramifications for all of this, and ideally, we would, of course, want to balance out the uh, risk-reward scenarios and all this kind of stuff to grow the economy over stagnation and blah, 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 and pull this lever and turn that dial, right? Um, But do you see how here everything focuses on these numbers and on the growth of money, and we just keep focusing back again on money over and over again? So we must confront this sort of notion that maybe this perpetual growth through capitalism that we're, this path we're on, is not sustainable. Unless, very much like our 11th round parable, you actually enjoy sitting in cesspools of chicken poop, right? (laughs) Well, yeah, of course no one likes that. And as well, we also need to talk about wealth inequality here or wealth consolidation because that's really what it is. It's all consolidating up at the top. I mean, and this is the people who hoard so much money that they get lifted above the chicken poop cesspool, right? They get lifted above the stink. Well, what if their money, this pile they were sitting on, this big hill, you know, what if it rotted and lost value over time? Just like, say, potatoes would, right? Well, then your concerns would shift. 
it wouldn't be, look at me sitting on all these potatoes, right? <laughs> but it would be more along the lines of, how can I make use of all these potatoes? I know, haha, <laughs> vodka, right? Yeah, and suddenly the good times are circulating again. <laughs> yeah, uh, social lubricant. So the point here is what if money had a decay rate, which is negative interest, and then has this been done before? And yes, some of this actually existed. The WIR in Switzerland, and then we had emergency currencies in the 1930s in America. And in 1906, Silvio Giselle proposed the natural economic order. And what you would do here is a stamp of a small percentage of the overall worth of the note would periodically be pasted onto paper currency. Now, this maintenance was kind of a fee on the currency, so it would actually depreciate over time. If a dollar required a one-cent stamp every month to stay valid, well, it would depreciate at an annual rate of 12%. So the idea is you better spend that dollar quick, otherwise it loses value and becomes less of a dollar over time. Now, as Giselle says, only money that goes out of date like a newspaper, rots like potatoes, rusts like iron, evaporates like ether, is capable of standing the test of an instrument for the exchange of potatoes, newspaper, iron, and ether. For such money is not preferred to goods either by the purchaser or the seller, only because we need the money as a means of exchange, not because we expect an advantage from the possession of the money. So this negative interest rate notion, this realignment of money to its place as a medium of exchange, not wealth, well, this is also known as demerge. I, I'm probably saying that wrong, but basically the term references a charge when somebody fails to load or discharge a ship within an agreed upon time. And it really is a penalty for slowing down circulation. Now in America, when we're in a recession, Recessions really don't make a lot of sense, right? Because we usually neither lack the goods, the ability to produce them, or the money to buy them with. All those things still exist. The money still exists. It just isn't flowing, and that's what causes a recession. So if we penalize hoarding, well, it gets money flowing because all of a sudden we're running at a negative interest rate. Now, naturally, the wealthy would hate this. Like, who wouldn't if you had money, right? Uh, which, of course, for me, just makes it all that more appealing. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but anyway, really, this monetary thing is a very limited view of wealth, because what we're really doing here is we just keep talking about fiscal wealth and economic power, because what is wealth really, right? Can we actually redefine wealth to include something like social, spiritual, environmental capital? Because sacred economics is not just about interest rates or taxation, right? This is a transformation. If wealth is instead measured through happiness and well-being, hmm, well, that also seems to be linked with intimate connections and community, with mutual benefit and attentiveness, which also, of course, can provide us with emotional stability, which none of us seem to have right now. Interestingly, communities that share and care, they also tend to form their own economic stability as a byproduct. <laughs> yeah, you heard that right. Once again, we have been distracted into focusing on the wrong kind of wealth. Part 3. The Land Okay, so how can negative interest save the environment? Because this is, of course, about sacred economics, right? I mean, we want this connection to the land and a way to become our higher self. So, yeah, I mean, I get it. Negative interest. 
It realigns our values away from money, uh, the eternal abstraction, transforms it back into a level of exchange, and it keeps us focused on the goods and services. So the potatoes are the point, not the money you get from them, right? But what about land use? Hmm, what about property and ownership? Let's talk about that. Because currently, in our society, of course, we're paying more and more attention to how the land is used and how the environment is treated and abused in general, which is great, and there's, you know, people screaming about a lot of it, but as well, it seems like there's a lot of polite words and hand-wringing. So how do we contend with this kind of problem of resources extracted and regurgitated as pollution back onto the land? Hmm. Can we fold that into our sacred economics and figure this out? Yeah, but let's take a look real quick at how this separation keeps occurring, right? There has been a kind of, of course, a continued interest in separating us, the consumer citizens, from the land and each other, but also in separating us from the means of production. So there's this kind of huge gap or distance between the production and the consumer, if we're going to sort of riff on Karl Marx here. And with all eyes on the separated individual self, not the social good, right? we become what is known as rational actors or rational optimizers. So what's that? Well, here's a little story, an economic story called The Tragedy of the Commons. So let's say that you, you know, being the amazing, great person you are, have a bunch of chickens. You have six chickens, right? And we're going to stick with chickens. I I don't know why we've made it this far talking about chickens. We're just going to stick with it. But say everyone in your village uses this common land. And this is the commons, or it's an open access area of unregulated resources. Now, everyone has six chickens, and they all graze and poop in the common area, and the grass grows, and the rain comes down, and the sun shines, and everything's great and peachy. And there's really no rules, and I mean, no one really even argues here. I mean, except for Dave and Karen, and oh my god, they just go on and on about anything. But if you, you're looking around, and you go, you know what? I could raise one more chicken. I don't think that would hurt anything. So I'm going to move on up to seven chickens. And there can't really be any adverse circumstances because it's only one more chicken on this huge chunk of land. Right? But what do you think happens next? Well, obviously, you know, rational, greedy humans show up and everyone wants to have one more chicken. Hmm. Well, and then somebody else wants to have one more chicken, and then everyone gets one more chicken, right? And it just keeps going until the common area is overgrazed and overpooped. So all of these rational actors acting out of your own best self-interest? Well, the act of individual ownership and the availability to actually increase their resources ends up robbing resources from everyone else. Because the commons, with all these extra chickens on it, it's now a cesspool and no one can raise chickens at all. So now we have to actually do things like imposing regulations and tariffs and we have to section off land and give it to people individually. And, you know, now your stewardship, which used to be social, is now individualized. But still, the ecosystem effects continue to be socialized because even if someone is a bad steward on their small plot of land, you can still have chicken poop runoff polluting the water. You have more insects showing up to eat the grain. All of a sudden, the air is foul, right? That doesn't just stay above your little plot of land. That little stink isn't captured by the boundaries of your uh, lines you drew on the ground. And of course, if you want to amplify this for global trade, we have China's pollution so that we can have super cheap technology. Hooray, right? That's all coming back around. So by becoming rational actors or rational optimizers, we actually cease to value social morality or spiritual capital, much less the commons and nature. Now with land, of course, we give the rights of use to somebody who 
does something with it, right? They tend to do things like extract from it, increase their wealth, and then they buy more land, or they just move on after polluting a whole bunch of stuff and tearing up everything. And you know, what they also tend to do is find something that was once free in the commons, like water or air, or even your attention, and they find a way to sell that for personal gain. So you take the social and you privatize it. Chief Seattle said in a famous speech, How can you buy or sell the sky, the warmth of the land? The idea is strange to us. But if we do not own the freshness of the air and the sparkle of the water, how can you buy them? Hmm. So this is a claim of ownership. This is a propertyfication or a commodification. It's a marketplace behavior. And this stems from an artificially contrived value of land, right? Uh, Land, air, water, whatever it is. The value cannot be truly measured. Our connection to the land, right, through things like reverence and gratitude, that also has become commodified and sold cheap. And what's really unfortunate is we don't really even understand what we sold or have been sold. So one placebo solution that, of course, is highly touted is that more efficient, cleaner extraction technology will let us all benefit. Of course, but we've also talked about this on the podcast. Technology has its own cascade effect, one effect of which is to displace workers, which are humans. So we end up displacing ourselves. Hence, this is why Eisenstein recommends a social dividend. And you can call it UBI or welfare or minicum or whatever you want. But this is a base that would be for stability, right? It's a way to also reset values because Eisenstein says we don't need more stuff. We don't need more phones and trinkets and sweatpants to say juicy on the butt, right? (laughs) But here's a larger question. You might ask, Ryder, well, where is the money going to come from for this social dividend? Because with negative interest, the money supply would continue to shrink. Good question, right? Well, what we're going to try to do is develop a commons-backed currency. And this is going to generate new money and align it with preserving nature. Hmm, Ryder, what the hell does that mean? (laughs) Yeah, good question. I don't know. I'm pretty new to this. But this is what I'm reading about. What if no one owned the land? But instead, it was sort of set aside in a public social trust. This is kind of a communal shared resource that could then be voted on and lent out or leased to corporations for a limited amount of time. Well, the lease of the land would do a couple of things, but the lease would provide money that would provide the social dividend, and the land itself would be our capital and currency. So not only would we be looking around for really good stewards of the land to to lease this to, uh, because of course that's protecting our capital supply, we wouldn't want to sell that cheap, but also it would make us refocus some things. Because for instance, if our land was strip mined, well as a community, we would have no land to lease out for the next 100 years, and thus no social dividend. So what might also happen is we would have, as a community, shared interests, right? This would reinvigorate the community and our interactions would then be a bigger concern for the stability of nature. Now, currently, what happens with pollution and harmful extraction, right? Well, if it's taxed at all, even after, you know, several litigations and maybe somebody just doesn't declare bankruptcy and disappear, right? Well, the land has already been destroyed. So if we taxed corporations before they could even touch the land, well, then it might actually be too expensive for them to even want to extract resources. They would have to rechannel their energy into something else. They would have to innovate new solutions. The current model actually encourages extractive destruction. It encourages profit before payment, and then you can try to get out of the payment later. But 
what if you're required to pay before you profited? It might actually look more fiscally wise just to leave the oil alone, leave the oil and minerals in the ground, and instead innovate a sustainable, renewable resource that would help everybody. So this is what Eisenstein means by aligning sacred incentives with money. If our incentive structure makes money itself less desirable through negative interest, of course this is money only functioning as a means of exchange. Meanwhile, we're charging fees for earth damage before you can even touch the land. So this really centralizes the care of the land. And what we do is we severely inhibit profanation of the commons, right? And we get people to come together around a shared interest, mutual interest of protecting the commons. And after all, this is where their money would be coming from, and it is the inheritance of future generations. So of course, these are great ideas, but this is just the beginning of the transition. But to sort of wrap it up, a little summary here, it's kind of a three-pronged attack. Part one, we realign money with natural decay. Part two, we alter the way land is used, letting it become the currency backing or capital as a communally shared resource. And then part three, letting pre-pollution taxing redirect innovation towards enriching the commons. So really, here, we need to mature. That's the overall point Eisenstein is trying to make. We need to cease being needy, greedy little adolescents and mature into responsible, considerate adults, right? And a lot of this is done by turning our creative energy towards reciprocity, not extraction. We need to become that butterfly. So capitalism, of course, it's a corpse maker. And of course, we've had plenty of time to shelter and grow inside this rotting framework, and it's gotten us to where we are. So we must now use the energies at hand and redirect them into incentives that align with the sacred. And of course, our next goal is, of course, to spread the story. That's what we have to do. Our current capitalism is not the only way. Thank you very much for your time. So naturally, the processes that I'm trying to explain here are expounded upon in the book. And each one of these phases and sort of how they interlock to orchestrate the ascent of humanity and the oneness with nature are really spelled out quite well with a lot of examples in there. And as well, in the book, Eisenstein speaks frequently of the notions of gratitude, spirit, and connection. Now, these are all concepts you almost never hear related to money or the economy, um, but they should be used more often and they should be the core of the principles that we're striving towards. So once again, thanks for listening. Thanks again. You all know the drill. It really tremendously helps if you can rate or review the show on whatever platform you use. And of course, all these episodes are on YouTube as well. Uh, Coming back around to this, I'm still considering writing some articles on various concepts covered in the podcast, uh, topics of philosophy and behavioral economics, things like that. If you're interested, um, I'm just doing a little poll. Let me know, writer at letusthinkaboutit.com. Um, And as well, (laughs) as a new project that I started, if you want daily wads of pseudo-wisdom, subscribe to bellybuttonlint.blog. That's right, bellybuttonlint.blog, where a navel-gazing insight will be sent straight to your inbox every day. (laughs) Okay, well, all the best, and until next time, stay safe.